Lesson 8 for August 13 to 19, Jesus Showed Sympathy. Sabbath afternoon, August 13. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come to open your word. And this week we're going to look at the compassion that Jesus had, the sympathy he showed for others, and the comfort that he brought. We pray that as we read your word, that your spirit will guide us so that it may affect our lives personally. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Let's read that again, Matthew 14, verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. How much more tragic could it be? A 17-year-old girl, struggling with more than most 17-year-old girls struggle with, except with so much more, took her own life. Who could imagine the parents' devastation? Their pastor came over to the house. He sat down in the living room next to them and for a long time said nothing. He just immersed himself in their grief. Then he, the pastor, started sobbing. He sobbed until his tears ran dry. Then, without saying a word, he got up and left. Some time later, the father told him how much he appreciated what the pastor had done. He and his wife at that time didn't need words, didn't need promises, didn't need counselling. All they needed right then and there was raw sympathy. I can't tell you, he said to the minister, how much your sympathy meant to us. Sympathy means with pathos, and pathos is related to pity, tenderness or sorrow. It means being with someone, but in a profound way. Showing sympathy toward the sorrows of others takes the question of mingling with others to a whole new level. Showing sympathy was also a crucial way that Jesus reached the people. Sunday, August 14, Hearing the Groans The universe can seem like a very scary place, vast, cold, and so big we sense our own insignificance and meaningless amid it. This fear has become even more prevalent with the advent of modern science, whose giant telescopes have revealed a cosmos much larger and vaster than our imaginations can readily grasp. Add to that the extravagant claims of Darwinism, which in most popular versions dismisses the idea of a creator, and people can understandably struggle with a sense of hopelessness amid a vast creation that seems to care nothing about us. Of course, the Bible gives a different view of our place in the creation. Question. What do the following texts teach about God's compassion towards his fallen and broken creation here on earth? Well, first of all, Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through to 18. Nevertheless, the Lord raises up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 
Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity for their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And Second Kings chapter 13 verse 23, But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. And Isaiah chapter 54 verses 7, 8, and 10, For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains shall part and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Contrary to the popular notion of the God of the Old Testament as stern, mean, unforgiving and uncompassionate, especially in contrast to Jesus and how he is represented in the New Testament, these texts are just a few of many in the Old Testament that reveal God's compassion for humanity. Question. What does Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 teach us about how God deals with suffering? Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and they, cry, came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. God deeply cares about people. As we read in James chapter 5 and verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. This is a theme that is seen all through the Bible. From Steps to Christ, page 100, I read, His heart of love is touched by our sorrows, and even our utterances of them. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. No calamity can befall the least of his children, of which our Heavenly Father is unobservant, or in which he takes no immediate interest. And so to finish today, what kind of collective groans are going up toward heaven in your community, and how can God use you to sympathise with and to help those who are suffering? Monday, August 15, our sympathetic Saviour. As Jesus mingled with people during his earthly ministry, he encountered situations that revealed his sympathy and compassion for them. Matthew 14.14 14 reads, 
He came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. Question. Read Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, and Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. What do they teach us about how true sympathy and compassion are made manifest? Well, first of all, Luke chapter 7 and verses 11 to 16. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. In Matthew 9, beginning at verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. The word sympathy also brings to mind other related words, such as empathy and pity. According to various dictionaries, compassion is pity, sympathy, empathy. Pity is sympathetic sorrow for one's suffering. Empathy is the ability to understand or share the feelings of others. Compassion and sympathy show that we not only understand what others are suffering, but want to help alleviate and remedy the suffering. When you hear about the sad things that have happened to people in your community, such as their house burning down or a death in the family, what is your reaction? Do you just mutter, that's so sad, and then move on, which is so easy to do? Or are your sympathies aroused, moving you with compassion for them? True compassion will lead you toward comforting and actively helping friends as well as strangers in practical ways. Whether it is sending a sympathy card or showing even deeper sympathy by visiting and assisting with immediate needs, loving action is the clear result of true sympathy. Fortunately, people and aid organisations tend to compassionately respond to big disasters. However, sometimes we may not pay as much attention to the smaller misfortunes and disasters that deeply affect people. Jesus didn't just show sympathy, but took that sympathy to the next level. Compassionate action. We, of course, are called to do the same. Anyone can feel sorrow or sympathy for someone's misfortune. The question is, what action does that sympathy lead us to perform? And so to finish the day. While eating breakfast, a man was listening to his wife read from the news about a tragedy in another country that had left thousands dead. After talking for a few moments about how terrible it was, he then changed the subject and asked whether the local soccer team had won the match the night before. In what ways are we all sometimes guilty of the same thing, and what, if anything, can we do about it?
Tuesday, August 16, Walking in Their Shoes. Question. Read Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, 1 Peter 3, 8, and 1 John 3, 17. What are these texts saying to us, and how can we reveal this compassion in our lives? First of all, Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. 1 John 3.17 But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Compassion comes from the Latin word compati, C-O-M-P-A-T-I, which means to suffer with. As we ourselves have suffered, we also can understand the sufferings of others. And no doubt, just as we often crave compassion and sympathy in our suffering, we should be willing to do the same for others in their need as well. We saw in an earlier lesson the story of the Good Samaritan. As he highlights the example of the Samaritan, Jesus says, But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and where he saw him, he took pity on him. That's Luke 10.33. This pity, or compassion, drove the Samaritan traveller to act on behalf of the injured victim. The priest and the Levite likely asked themselves, If I help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan might have asked himself, If I don't help this man, what will happen to him? In this story, the Samaritan unselfishly takes the perspective of the victim and takes action. He risks his safety and his wealth for a stranger. In other words, sometimes being a Christian involves risks and can be potentially very costly. Look at the story of the prodigal son from this perspective as well, and you'll remember we read it uh, from Luke 15 just a couple of weeks ago. What does the prodigal's father do that makes him vulnerable to criticism and family strife? The compassionate embrace, the robe of belonging, the ring of trust, the sandals of freedom, and the call for celebration reflect the selfless joy of a father who is willing to sacrifice all for the sake of his prodigal son's restoration. Prodigal means wasteful, reckless, extravagant, and uncontrolled. This kind of behaviour certainly describes the path of the son in this story. But stop for a moment and consider that, in response to the return of the prodigal, one could justly claim that the father in this story puts all dignity aside and recklessly bestows everything he has on his dishevelled son. In the eyes of the older sibling, the father is wasteful, extravagant and uncontrolled. The father becomes prodigal at the sight of his repentant son, and his heart of compassion triggers the emptying of all resources necessary to restore him. This level of sympathy and compassion involves setting self aside, and it can make us vulnerable to whatever comes as we suffer with someone and endeavour to move him or her toward restoration. In short, true compassion and sympathy might come with a cost.
Wednesday, August 17, Jesus Wept Jesus Wept, John 11.35 Question, what does this verse tell us? Not just about the humanity of Jesus, but how in that humanity he related to the suffering of others. And we'll also look at Romans 12.15, which reads, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. In John 11.35, Jesus wept. Jesus demonstrated sympathy, empathy and pity from his core. Even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, the grief of a family with whom he was very close affected him physically and emotionally. However, Jesus was weeping not only over the death of a dear friend, he was looking at a much bigger picture that of the suffering of all humanity because of the ravages of sin. From the Desire of Ages, page 534, the weight of the grief of ages was upon him. He saw the terrible effects of the transgression of God's law. He saw that in the history of the world, beginning with the death of Abel, the conflict between good and evil had been unceasing. Looking down the years to come, he saw the suffering and sorrow, tears and death that were to be the lot of men. His heart was pierced with the pain of the human family of all ages and in all lands. The woes of the sinful race were upon his soul, and the fountain of his tears was broken up as he longed to relieve all their distress. End of quote. Think about those words. Jesus, in ways that none of us ever could, saw the pain of the human family in all ages and in all lands. We ourselves barely can stand to think about the pain of those whom we know or with whom we are close. Then add to that the pain of others that we read about in the news. And yet, we have here the Lord, who knows things in ways that we don't, weeping over the collective grief of humanity. God alone knows the full extent of human woe and sorrow. How thankful we should be that we get only faint glimpses of that sorrow, and sometimes even that seems too much for us. Try to imagine what must have been stirring the heart of Jesus at that time. And to finish the day, General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, said, If you can't cry over the city, we can't use you. What should those words say to each of us? Thursday, August 18. Another kind of comforter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Question. What is Paul telling us here about how our own suffering can help us be more effective in showing sympathy and comfort to those around us? How have you experienced, if you have, the reality of these words in your life? The word comfort comes from the Latin cum, 
together with, plus fortis, strong. As Christ strengthens us in our suffering, we can pass this strength to others. As we have learned from our own sorrows, we can more effectively minister to others in theirs. Churches generally have members who suffer and members who comfort. This combination can transform your church into a safe house, a city of refuge as described in Numbers 35, as well as a river of healing that flows to the community. And river of healing is expressed in Ezekiel 47, and we're going to start reading here from verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the street with the line in his hand, he measured one thousand cubits. And he brought me through the waters and the water came up to my ankles. Again he measured one thousand and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again he measured one thousand and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again he measured one thousand, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from Engedi to Englame. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many, but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for medicine. Showing sympathy and comfort is an art. Here are some suggestions. Be authentic. Listen more than you speak. Be sure your body language reinforces your attempt to sympathize and comfort. Show sympathy out of your individual personality. Some people give sympathy by quietly crying with the troubled person. Others don't cry but show sympathy by organizing something that is a comfort to the bereaved. Being a presence is often more important than speaking or doing. Allow people to grieve in their own way. Become acquainted with the stages of processing grief that people often go through. Be careful about saying, I know how you feel. Chances are that you don't. There is a place for professional counselling. Don't say, I'll pray for you, unless you really intend to do so. 
when possible, pray with, unhurriedly, visit with, and share encouraging Bible promises with suffering ones. And finally, organize support groups, if available, at your church or in your community. Friday, August 19. A few families with their small children got together during a holiday and made packages of food and toiletries to give out to the many homeless in their city. After working for a few hours, they got into their cars, went to the city centre and in about half an hour distributed the goods. They then went off to a museum and afterward out to dinner. As they were walking back to the cars, one of them said, I'm glad we did this, but do you realise that by now, most of those whom we fed are probably hungry again. No question, there are so many people out there who need comfort, sympathy and help that it can seem overwhelming almost to the point of where one would think, what's the sense of doing anything? We can barely make a dent. Numerous problems exist with that line of thinking, however. First, if everyone thought that way, no one would help anyone and the needs, as terrible as they are, would be even worse. On the other hand, if everyone who could help others would, then the needs, as terrible as they are, wouldn't be so bad. Second, we've never been told in the Bible that human pain, suffering and evil would be eliminated this side of heaven. In fact, we've been told the opposite. Even Jesus, when here, didn't end all human suffering. He did what he could. We are to do the same, bring comfort, sympathy and help to those whom we can. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, how can your church be made into a safe healing place for the broken-hearted? Two, discuss in class the following quote, and it's by Dwight Nelson from Pursuing the Passion of Jesus. Many wonder why God doesn't act. God wonders why so many of his people don't care. Do you even agree with the premise of this challenge? If so, what can we do to change? And three, look at this quote from Ellen White. It's from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 30. Kindly words, simply spoken... Little attentions simply bestowed will sweep away the clouds of temptation and doubt that gather over the soul. The true heart expression of Christ-like sympathy, given in simplicity, has power to open the door of hearts that need the simple, delicate touch of the Spirit of Christ. End of quote. What should this tell us about the incredible power for good that kindness and sympathy can have as we reach out to help the grieving? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Remember Your Faith, Part 1. P. 
Pierre stumbled down the red dirt road, following others who walked in front of him. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew that he had to get away from the death that pursued him. Pierre was nine years old when the Rwandan genocide took the lives of 800,000 Rwandas and destroyed the life he had known. Pierre's father, a pastor, had gathered his nine children together and told them solemnly, I don't know what will happen. If you live, you must remain faithful to God. Remember the Sabbath. Remember your faith. When soldiers came, the family fled to the church for refuge, but the soldiers set fire to the church. Pierre could still smell the smoke and could still hear the screams of those dying around him. Somehow he had managed to escape the building and flee without being shot. But what had happened to his family, he didn't know. Pierre followed others who fled to neighbouring Burundi. He survived in a refugee camp until he was told that it was safe to return to Rwanda. Once again he walked the dusty road, this time toward his home. He found his town. He found a pile of ashes where his church had been. He found bones. Somehow he knew that only he had survived. He was alone. His father's words rang in his heart. Stay faithful to God no matter what. Pierre's aunt, who lived in neighbouring Uganda, came searching for his family. She took Pierre home to live with her. Together they built a new life. Over time, the sharp pain of his loss became a dull ache. His faith in God grew stronger. Then, without warning, his aunt died in an accident. Once more, Pierre was alone. He was fourteen, and didn't know what to do or where to turn. All he had was his faith. The Rwandan government provided free education to genocide survivors, and someone helped Pierre enroll in high school. He shared a room with two other boys, Estras and Dio, who had lost their families in the genocide too. The three boys became as brothers, bound together by loss and tragedy. Pierre finished high school and was awarded a full scholarship to study at a national university in Rwanda, but he turned down the offer. He wanted to study at the Seventh-day Adventist University in Kigali, even though his genocide survivor benefits wouldn't pay all his costs. You're crazy, his friends told him. Take the scholarship. And this story is to be continued next week. We'll see you then. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.